morning. My name is Carrie. I'm glad to see a good full house here today. This is the day the Lord has made, and you've chosen to do what? Rejoice in it and be glad. That's right. I tell you what, and Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered together, where is he going? Right there. Wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. Let me pray before we launch today. God, I just asked that today you would be able to strengthen the tie that binds us together as a church family, whether we are first-timers or long-timers. And I pray, God, that that tie that would bind us together would be one that you would be glorified with because you have chosen to use your people, the church, to do your work. Lord, we live in some desperate kind of days. History is long. But, Lord, you have never failed. And we would ask that you would take today as we start into some new subject material to unify us, to hear your voice, and to mobilize us to do your will and your purposes in this day. In your name, amen. Let justice roll. The book of Amos. How many of you are familiar with the book of Amos? Well, there's a few. It's actually a book. We're going to talk about it in a second. But one of the reasons I felt that God was calling us to sort of walk into uh, this description of uh, or this discussion and through the book of Amos for a few weeks is because of the season that we're in as a nation and in particular, I guess, in light of it being a political season. You and I are bombarded with a lot of great hopes and expectations. We're also bombarded with a lot of crisis, unrest, disillusionment, and a culture that is adrift. How do we respond? How do we interact? And the key phrase that just has been coming to my spirit over and over again is, let justice rule. This comes from Amos 5.24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This past week, it seems like every week there's something new, right, in the news. This past week there were uh, two shootings that happened through police forces trying to do law enforcement, one in Tulsa, one in Charlotte. The responses have been different in each of those towns and uh, the local authorities dealing with things as, as they feel a right to be dealt with. But as you see the unrest, in particular in Charlotte this week, where there were, like many, riots happening and it was on the nightly news, what do you do inside when you see that? Does something well up inside of you and say, yes, justice needs to be had in that moment? Or do you become cynical and go, what's their problem? Right? And you're sort of pitted to be the us versus them. And in Charlotte in particular, with the unrest, you had, I guess, from my understanding, 70% or more of those who were a part of the unrest, actually, when they were arrested, had outside the state identifications. So there's a flocking together wherever there's controversy to make it worse. All I know is this. Justice needs to roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. But is the justice that we long for social justice only? 
Or is there a deeper, broader, bigger, grander sense of justice that the scriptures speak about that will ultimately bring the justice we seek to have in our land and in other countries? Let justice rule. Now, last year, the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is the movement that we're a part of as a church, had their general council. And the general council happened to be in Long Beach. Some of you went there for one of those sessions in Long Beach. A few of you, remember? And uh, earlier in that week, uh, there's a gentleman connected with the alliance by the name of Michael Bornet. And uh, he's a young African-American man, and he's got a passionate heart for God. And I never knew who he was, but he stepped up, and as they introduced him, I'm like, well, this is interesting. This will be great to see. Now, the Alliance has a lot of diversity. In fact, um, you would find about almost 40 different languages spoken in the 2,000 Alliance churches in the United States alone. And, of course, the Alliance is involved in 70-plus countries around the world. In many places, uh, it's the largest evangelical Protestant kind of movement of churches in some of these other countries because the movement we're a part of is a missionary-sending movement, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It goes back 120-some-plus uh, years. In, in the Alliance, you would find a lot of ethnic diversity. You would find uh, uh, a district uh, or an association for uh, the Vietnamese, the Cambodian, the Korean, the Spanish. There's an African-American association. In fact, one of the newer associations is the Arabic-speaking association of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And you'll want to come next week, just a little side note here, because I get the opportunity to introduce you uh, to a gentleman who helps lead the Arabic uh, ministry uh, in this valley, and they are actually going to start becoming uh, users or a part of this body and have a service here at 12 o'clock every week. And so they begin next week at 12 o'clock. One of the things, don't worry, the pastor's trying to button down and get things out of here shorter time, so that's all good. Okay? Sort of put that stamp there. But the Arabic ministry and... Um, You'll get a, a chance to uh, meet uh, their leadership next week some. But I want us to be praying about that, own that. We're excited about it. They're going to be renting some of the space. That thing helps us too and all that kind of thing. But um, Michael Bosch is his name, and you'll get to meet Michael and his wife next week. But that's an example. There's associations with different kind of uh, ethnicities, people from other countries. The alliance is very broad. It's one of the things I like about the Christian Missionary Alliance, okay, is its diversity. But... At General Council, they bring in some of that diversity. And I want to take you to um, General Council of last year when uh, Micah Barnet uh, shared, and he sort of brings into some focus just the reality of how God sees us all as equal people. My name is Micah Barnet, and I do an art form called spoken word poetry. And uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with spoken word, a quick introduction. Um, it's poetry meant to be performed instead of read in a book. So it's like the difference between writing a novel and writing a script for a film or a play. If you write a novel, you expect your audience to read it on paper. But if you write a script, you don't want them to read it on paper. You want them to watch as the actors perform what you've written. So it's poetry meant for the stage instead of the page. 
Um, and I get inspiration for poetry from strange places sometimes. And uh, this particular poem was inspired by a bottle of shampoo. <laughs> and the title of the poem is Normal Hair. I was showering at the home of a white friend, pondering deeply as I lathered my chocolate skin, when suddenly I got the inclination to observe the labels of the hygiene products placed neatly on the windowsill. One particular bottle struck me as queer. A Garnier fruit. You need to reload that and, sep and, and pull it out separate. That's fine. My name is Micah Bournet, and I do an art form called spoken word poetry. And uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with spoken word, a quick introduction. Um, it's poetry meant to be performed instead of read in a book. So it's like the difference between writing a novel and writing a script for a film or a play. If you write a novel, you expect your audience to read it on paper. But if you write a script, you don't want them to read it on paper. You want them to watch as the actors perform what you've written. So it's poetry meant for the stage instead of the page. Um, and I get inspiration for poetry from strange places sometimes. And uh, this particular poem was inspired by a bottle of shampoo. And the title of the poem is Normal Hair. I was showering at the home of a white friend, pondering deeply as I lathered my chocolate skin, when suddenly I got the inclination to observe the labels of the hygiene products placed neatly on the windowsill. One particular bottle struck me as queer. A Garnier fruit... <laughs> now go. We'll do it next week. How's that? So sorry about that. Next week. Got all kinds of things going. It was mindful of um, when Michael was done, though, at General Counsel, how we really are all one. And he goes on to play off that whole thing of what really is normal. What's normal to you may not be normal to somebody else, right? But yet we battle and we struggle with being able to treat each other not only with equality, but also with righteousness and goodness. You see, what we want is not just justice, because justice, treating one another as equals in the minds of contemporary society, we could all be treated bad, and that's not good. We want something more than justice. We want something higher. We want something grander. We want something more whole and true, and that's found in the very heart of God, of which we 
want to look at. Now, Amos is one of what's called the minor prophets. How many of you can whip off the 39 books of the Old Testament? All the way from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. There's actually a little tune, song to this. Yes, my wife, I know you know that, honey. Because <laughs> you do children's ministry and they actually teach kids there how to do the books of the Bible, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, some of you have never opened to that section of your Bibles before, maybe. But you can break it down into the history section, the wisdom section, and the prophecy section. If you were to take the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. It's called the Law, the Torah, or the Pentateuch. Some different words that come with those first five books from Adam and Eve, the beginning, through Noah, Abraham, Moses, up to the promised land. And then it moves into the pre-exile historical books, Joshua and the judges. It goes into the monarchy of the kings and then the divided kingdom. And then they are swept away, the Israelites are, and Judah, into foreign lands. They are exiled. It would be like us all disappearing from America and going to Canada, right? Or to Mexico. You're exiled. So that's the history section of the Old Testament, just to do a little bit of a Bible class for us here this morning, if you're not familiar with it. But then there's the section of wisdom literature, which infiltrates different areas through then, and and, uh, Psalms and Proverbs we're most familiar with. But then the latter section of the Old Testament are the prophets, And the prophets can be divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets. Not because the major ones were major and the minor were minor. It literally has to do with how much they wrote. So the major prophets are referred to as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. And then the minor prophets, there's 12 minor prophets. One of the most beautiful seasons I had study-wise, I recall, in my life was when I was in intense, uh, uh, in, uh, intense undergraduate seasons of my senior year, and there was so much to do, so many projects. And I said, Lord, where am I going to find time to do my personal devotional life? And he says, you just take your lunch hour. You have your lunch hour, 45 minutes, and I remember taking my lunch hour, and every lunch... I would try to work my way through the 12 minor prophets while I was in that intense semester-ending season of my studies. Now, that's a heavy time to do. If you've never had the opportunity to take the 12 minor prophets and read through them, I encourage you to do that. We are going to take one of those minor prophets, Amos. And we're going to look at him here for just a few weeks because Amos has a lot to say to us today concerning justice, concerning righteousness, concerning wholeness, not just in a political sense or a geographical sense. It has to do with your heart and my heart related to our calling as beings made in the image of God. Now, Amos, Amos, one of the reasons I like Amos, and for those of you who know my background, I come from a large farm in the Midwest, and Amos was a farm kid. Amos 
it says this in Amos 1. This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, was king of Israel. Later on in Amos 7.14, but Amos replied, he's given defense for why he was to be the prophet at that time. He says, I am not a professional prophet and I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd and I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. So Amos, if you don't know the gentleman, was uh, just a regular guy doing about his business. He was a farmer. He uh, oversaw sheep. He also raised sycamore uh, trees. And he was just taking care of his business in the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, what had happened prior to this was after after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided into two. All right? We won't go into all the politics that happened back then, but splits happened, right? So there was the northern kingdom, and it was called Israel proper. And then there was the southern kingdom that was called Judah. Ten of the twelve tribes went to the north. Two of the twelve tribes went to the south. And there they sat. They sat as neighbors. And Amos was from the south, taking care of his business in a town about twelve miles southeast of Jerusalem. And what happened to him? God came to him. God came to him, he spoke to him, and he says, I want you to be my mouthpiece to go to your neighbors in the north and tell them my word. Really? Do I have to do that, God? Does that ever happen to you? God says, I want you to do this. And you have fear and trepidation. And you say, who am I? What am, I oh, am I really to do this and take this initiative on? Am I to help this person out? Am I going to be involved in this? And God says, yes, I'm going to press this on your heart so much. Until you realize it's me calling you to do this. And so Amos, the farm kid, and he's probably really more than that. If he was the word in Hebrew there for shepherd is actually one that refers more to maybe like a rancher. So he's probably overseeing a lot of uh, shepherds. And the sycamore trees means that he was, you know, he had diversified his income issues. So maybe he was more entrepreneurial. So whether you see him as sort of a, a backwoodsy kind of just, you know, person taking care of a few animals, or whether you see him as an entrepreneurial CEO kind of type, either way, you can identify with God coming to you or I out of the blue and saying, I'm going to pick you to do something you don't know. And so I want to encourage you to ask yourself this question. What keeps an unlikely person like you from being used by God to do his work in our world? You probably have a few excuses. I have a few. It may be something small. It may be something big. Are you and I open to the impressions of God that says, I want to pick you? Now, as mentioned, Josh mentioned, we have some of our sermon-based groups Uh, Some of our life groups are message-based, and and you can go to Josh and Ted's group tomorrow if you want. (laughs) But the guy that helped frame up this series, he has a group on Tuesday night. (laughs) And when we go through group, we'll be asking some questions like this, okay? What keeps us unlikely, as an unlikely person, from doing something God has called us to do? In our world. Don't ever get bored with your life. Don't ever get 
in the doldrums concerning what God's maybe going to do or not do. I believe each and every season of our life, God comes and he says, I want to use you. And he came to Amos and he gave Amos a tough, tough job. You see, Amos, he had to leave and go to people that he knew were not of his kin. And he had to tell them one of the harshest words you would probably find in Scripture. Israel at this time, as well as Judah, was in a season of prosperity. There was a lot of affluence going on. There was a lot of uh, self-grandizement of thinking that they were great. They were even in their minds doing well spiritually because they would go and offer their sacrifices and do other things. I guess you could say, and it will come up later in the book, they were sort of fat Christians. And they thought they were fine. And Amos comes to them and he speaks to them. Now it's interesting if you turn to the book of Amos, because in Amos he he leads off in verse 3, he says this, This is what the Lord says for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. It's a, it's a phrase that he goes on and uses. And, and, and what he's saying to them initially was, all your enemies that are around you, look how bad they are. And the people in the north were going like, you betcha. They're bad. They're bad. Look how terrible they are and how they treat people and all that's going on. And he, he just goes through and lists several enemies. Verse 3, this is what the Lord says for three sins of Damascus, even for four. Then uh, he goes on. Verse 6, for three sins of Gaza, even for four. And that, that, that's sort of a repetition way of saying you're sinning again and again and again and again. I will not turn back my wrath. And he goes on and lists others for three sins of Tyre, even for four. For three sins of Edom, and even for four. Verse 13, for three sins of Ammon, even for four. For three sins of Moab in chapter 2. And, and if you're dialing in to Amos showing up and preaching this guy, word, he's there like, yeah, I can't believe those people are, are so off track. Those people are, are sinners. Those people are abusing people. Those people are uh, shunning people. They're bad. You're right, Amos. You're right. For three sins of Judah, then, he calls attention to his own kin. But then he turns around and he says this in chapter 2, verse 6. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn my back. In the NIV, the newer NIV, it says, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as, for, as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Now, you can imagine the picture that's behind each one of those kinds of statements. We're fine. We're doing well. Prosperity. Affluence. Power. Prestige. We're at peace. He says this in chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord is spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. 
You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Did two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? No. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? No. Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? No. Does a bird swoop down to trap on the ground when no bait is there? No. Does a trap spring up from the ground if it had not caught anything? No. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? Yeah. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? I don't know. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants and his prophets. Amos 5, verse 7, and then 10. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, beautiful mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppose the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. You know what catches me about all this? And that's just... A slice of Amos. You want to spend time reading through the nine chapters this week? God knows. God sees. God sees brokenness. God sees injustice. He sees the hurting. He sees people that aren't being dealt with right. Sometimes we cry out, Who will help us? Who will bring justice? Who will make all things right? There is one who knows. Nothing escapes the eye of God. Now, for you and I, if we are in a place of brokenness in our life, that maybe we've been dealt an injustice. Maybe maybe you've been passed over for a promotion for no good reason other than there was politics involved. Or somebody else maybe had a a better appearance. Or someone else had, you know, more uh, people skills, savvy kind of thing to woo that position in. Maybe you weren't able to make a team, and you should have been able to make a team. Maybe you, um, you know, were taken advantage of by a person. Maybe uh, you've even come recently underneath somebody robbing you or taking something from you, and there's something inside of us that does what? It says, that's not fair. That's not fair. All of us have been in those places where we say, this isn't fair. Maybe some uh, ailments have befallen you that shouldn't have happened because of some other person's responsibility. Maybe you were in an accident or something. And there's, there's just this gnawing inside of you. It's like, this isn't right. I've been dealt an injustice. And you cry out. You need to know this. God knows. God knows all that's going on. And if you're in a place of brokenness, having dealt with unjustly, then God is definitely, without question, your companion and your friend. But a lot of times it's not that we're in those kind of states. We are oblivious. We are blinded to maybe how we are treating other people or the injustice that we're participating in, whether it's with attitudes or actions. God knows that as well. And whether as individuals, whether as a family, a people group, Maybe your place of employment, I don't know. 
Maybe it's with a city, a community. Maybe it's with a nation or multiple nations. What strikes me is that God knows what's going on. And He will make all things right one day, but we're not in that one day yet. How do I deal with the brokenness and injustice today? How do I deal with it? Now, you could also say that Amos isn't, uh, could be entitled, Let Justice Rule. It could be entitled, Let the Lord Roar. Because he, cause he talks about being that lion. Does a lion roar in the wilderness, in the woods, when there is no prey? When does the lion roar? The lion roars when he's got his prey trapped. And there's no escape. And he lets out the big MGM roar. Amos says, the Lord roars. And he roars because he has the abusers of justice and righteousness in his sight. And for three sins of whoever and more, I am now going to deal with this which is at hand. I don't know if you've been before a lion who roars. We have a lot of coyotes where I live. And they all start yakking. And sometimes I get a little scared as well as my dog. But I've never faced a roaring lion that has me scoped down. God scopes us down. And he examines the soul. The soul of an individual but also the soul of a people. And Amos was telling the people of Israel, God is examining your soul and your actions, and it's not right. It's not right. Now this happened in 7800 B.C., before Christ. Here we sit, 2016, you will, after Christ. And we still have the same dilemmas. People not being dealt with rightly. But it comes back to where the sense of injustice comes from. Injustice just doesn't flow down to the sky. Injustice comes from the hearts of people. It comes from my heart. It comes from your heart. And the best thing to do is say, God, examine our souls and give us, not the escape, but give us the freedom and the redemption from the sinful state that we are in. My question to you is what injustice so grieves the heart of God today that he must move to action? A justice, injustice maybe in your soul and my soul, and a justice in our land and our community. What injustice so grieves him that he must move to action? Because you say, In your soul, yes, that's not right. He says, yes, that's not right. And he's going to do something about it. The question that comes along with that on the heels of it is what injustice so grieves your heart that you must move to action? You see, when God picked Amos, can you imagine, was Amos burned by what was happening to the north or what happened in his land? 
yes, in part, but God gave him a greater burden, and he placed on him a sense of injustice that was happening. And so he then moved down to participate in God's purposes. And I think the sense of injustice that way, you know, here's where I'm at with demonstrators. And, you know, I have a hard time with people not standing for the flag and all that kind of stuff that's going on right now. All right. Because in doing one thing, you think you're doing right, but then it's not doing right in some other ways. I have to come back and I have to say to myself, okay, I have to have an appreciation for somebody if they are true and sincere and they don't have alternative agendas. If they have a sense of injustice that's happening and they want to do an action about it, that's good. Because that comes to some degree from how we're made in the image of God. God sees injustice. He becomes the lion. He's got the prey. And he's focused. He's roaring. This is not right. And so if you have a demonstrator or a protester, all right, or an athlete that's not standing for the American flag and and inside of their heart of hearts, they sense an injustice, then, well, I guess so be it. I'm not going to make some ultimate judgment call on that. But many a times, it's not for those reasons. It's for other self-centered reasons that are just as ugly as the self-centered reasons that brought about the social justice you're complaining about. All right? So you have to watch the purity of your heart and your motives at every turn. But if you have a sense of injustice, whether it's about racial inequality or maybe the plight of the poor or the homeless, or maybe it's a sense of injustice that's happening in other lands, oppression, and that gets you, well, you need to know this. That if it's pure in the sight of God, that's because you're made in the image of God. You are a moral being. And as a moral being, we want right and wrong to be dealt with. What injustice so grieves the heart of God today that he must move to action. And I'm sorry, maybe I, sh- I shouldn't go down this alley, but I'm always amazed by how we will pick one or two things in American culture and we become indignant about that. But then there's a whole host of other things that we seem to think need to be politically correct and we just need to be nice about. All right? Yeah, I think I'll just leave it right there. You can go to your groups and you can answer what some of those things are. How about that? I might get myself in trouble. I don't know. And it's not that I'm shy about doing it. It just leads me down a path. But that's what I start to think. It's like, well, that's an injustice. Sure. But what about this injustice or this injustice? But we turn a blind eye to a whole bunch of other things that we do as a culture. And we say, oh, no, this is normal. Everybody gets to do what they want to do. You know, you choose your choice, all that kind of thing. But over here, well, we'll focus on these two or three. And they become the hot ticket items in culture. But what injustice grieves the heart of God today that so burdens his soul that he must move to action? And how long will it be until he does move? That's the scary thing, isn't it? I think God is extremely patient and kind. If I was God, I would have dealt with things by now. You ever feel that way? Well, I'll take care of that. That's what his name is. He's all these people. He finally took care of it. And throughout history, over and over again, he's gracious and kind, and then he takes care of it. What moves the heart of God to action today? But what moves your heart to action today? Or are you so self-centered like the Israel people were, just consumed with your life, your agenda, building your portfolio, taking care of just your, your, your few munchkins? God can't put upon you a burden for something bigger 
to step into? What injustice so grieves your heart today that you must be moved to action? And are you and I being obedient to what those burdens are, just as surely as Amos was? God was obedient to action. This was what he did. Another prophet that was sort of simultaneous in some of that same century as Amos was the major prophet Isaiah. In Matthew, it's recorded of this concerning God's action, reflecting back on the prophecy of Isaiah. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him, referring to Jesus. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice in the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of all the world. Isn't that an amazing prophecy? Spoken of the Messiah who would come. Jesus was the result of God moving to action to deal with the injustice of the world. And so in God's time, he sent Christ, God's son, incarnate in the flesh. And he came not with a sword, but with a broken heart and with an obedient heart unto the Father. And it's Jesus that was God's ultimate plan of action to deal with the injustice in our world. That's why it's no surprise when we find these verses in Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus, when he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now he's doing what? He's going back a passage in Isaiah. He's using it. Standing in front of a group like you and I. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you see Jesus? Like he stands up, reads the scroll. And he goes and sits down. And everybody here goes, looking. They're looking at him. And he began by saying to them, because he had more to say, but he just simply said this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You're broken about the injustice. Good. It means you've got the heart of God. Where do you go with that? Do you go to despair? Do you go with frustration? Do you go to sin? Trying to combat it with some equal kind of self-centered kind of injustice maybe to people? Or do you go to Jesus? Because in Christ, we know that He is the one who came to be able to give good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for prisoners, give sight to the blind, set the oppressed free, and declare the year of the Lord's favor. In part, when he died on the cross and was raised from the grave and broke the power of sin that holds people's hearts, he will come again and he will deal with evil at large. 
the author of evil, Satan, and all those who seek to be non-God followers, God will let his wrath and his judgment will come at hand and all will be made right when Jesus returns. So we long for that, but this day and age that we work in with injustice, what do we do? We offer up the hope, not of just change the way you're thinking. Get better educated about your ignorance. We offer up the one who brings and embodies truth because he can change the heart of an individual. I came across a great quote again this week from a lady by the name of Beatrice Webb. Any of you ever heard of who Beatrice Webb was? She was one of the architects of the modern British welfare system. She and her husband and some others founded the London School of Economics. She was a socialist. She was an activist. She was a British leader. And she kept a diary. And in her diary in 1925, that's how far back this goes, she reflects on her life as an activist as a socialist, trying to make things that are wrong right in her country and in the lands that she had an influence with. She went back to her diary and she looked at it and she writes this. In my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? That was a socialist. She fought for a common welfare state, equality of all people, helping people out. But she looks back over these 30 plus years in her diary and she said, I staked it all on this idea that there's intrinsic goodness in people's heart. I was wrong. That's what she says. Because you see, you can jump up and down, hold picket signs, you can run here and there, you can flock to a, a different state to be able to make a protest. But the reality is the injustice that we're trying to fight that's in our land comes from an unjust heart, a broken heart of people. And the reason Jesus is the answer is because he changes the heart. He can change your heart. If you're an angry person today, if you're indignant, if you have a sense of of, of frustration that just is over the top emotionally, if you're self-indulgement, if you're falling to some kind of escape of sins, you have a heart problem. The racism in our world today, it's a heart problem. Yes, it's exemplified sometimes in skin issues, But the reality is you can have people that have the same type of skin and they're still prejudiced because they come from two different backgrounds. I grew up in the Midwest. I saw there being prejudice from one sector of people to another sector of people by where they grew up or where they came from maybe. And we all looked alike. So that idea of of injustice or brokenness or prejudice, it comes from a broken heart. And here Beatrice Webb looks back and goes, I was wrong. 
I was wrong because something is intrinsically evil in the heart of people, and that's because we have fallenness. Now, we don't like to hear that. This is not a happy-go-lucky, send you out of here, let's go have lunch. Jesus, God. This is like, oh, this is like surgery. This is a significant condition. We just went through that book in Revelations. Can't we do something a little bit lighter? The reason I camp here is because we need to be a part of the solution and the hope for our world, for your family, for your friends. But what we have to offer is just not get better educated about your ignorance or try to think different. What we have to offer is life change. Jesus changes hearts, and he can change your heart, and he can change mine. And that's what God did. He roared. He was moved to action by the injustice. Yes, he dealt with things during that time of Amos, but then he sent his son Christ to be able to bring the hope at hand. Justice is equated to righteousness in Scripture. It's not foremostly equated to social justice. And so we have taken the word justice and we've sort of impregnating it with wrong kind of at least forethought thinking. Justice deals with righteousness. So if we're, we're picketing, if we're boycotting, whatever, if we want justice, then we're wanting righteousness. We want things to be made right in the sight of God. And righteousness describes the very character of God. And so what God did then... The justice of God dwells in the person and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is redeeming mankind from self-centered sin. The righteousness of Christ in me then demands that the justice of God flows through me to others. And so the hope of the world, the hope for your friends, the hope for your life is God's righteousness coming to dwell within you. And as it dwells within you, then you need to let that righteousness flow to others. And yeah, you can articulate the evils and and Amos was doing that. We'll be looking at that some in the coming weeks and all that's well and good. But where do we go with it? We have to go to the one who is righteous, the one who is just, the one who is pure, the one who is the truth, the one who is the way, the one who is the life. And Christ changes hearts. And as he changes hearts, he changes families. As he changes families, he changes communities. He changes communities. He can change a valley. If he changes a valley, he can change a city, a city to a state, a state to a nation. You see, our enemy, we think, is in other lands. But the reality is our enemy, though it may be in other lands, is also our own culture. And in our culture, the enemy arises because of broken hearts and souls. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. How are we going to be people who offer the justice of God this week. Someone who's maybe not been done rightly. Someone who's downtrodden. People in the shadows. Do our hearts go there? And do our hearts go with a sense of compassion, not just to be kind to them, but to offer them Christ? You know, I don't have time to belabor here at the end. But I believe in many ways, as I look across a body like this, many of you are involved in giving justice to people week in and week out. And God smiles on that. His wrath does not come down on you. He is glad to see what you're doing to try to make wrongs right and by living for Christ and allowing his righteousness to live through you. 
it's interesting how God orders our lives. You never quite know that. And this weekend we had the opportunity um, to see our Down syndrome son, uh, Levi, and a friend of his who had Down syndrome, uh, go to a dance. We had dinner with uh, his friend's parents before they went to the homecoming dance last night. And we shared back and forth as parents in one sense about sometimes people's in ignorance, injustice, maybe, I don't know, concerning special needs people, especially those of us in the Down syndrome community. And I thought, you know, it's so true. I, I, I raise up in my heart when I see injustice brought about for special needs kind of kids because I'm a special needs dad. This is a picture of Levi and his friend Miranda at the homecoming. They have a great special needs teacher in their school system who's always pro-incorporation, incorporating, encouraging people. And uh, when Levi was born, when Levi was born, I didn't know, my wife didn't know really what the future held, but you go to Bath. And you say, there's someone who is made in the image of God with an extra chromosome, but a beautiful person. So also with his friend. And I admire people who go to bat and teach and work hard to be defenders of the weak. Put your picture up there, buddy. Sorry, I didn't ask your permission. What is God's heart broken about that moves him to action today? Look at your own heart. How is he trying to move you to action? To be the defender of the weak, the downtrodden, the poor, the disenfranchised, the ones who are walked on, the ones who are discarded, the ones maybe who are even arrogant or caught up in a world of of power, but inside they're broken and you have the relationship with them to reach them. What's going to move us to action? Each of us have different camps and fields of people. Amos wanted to see justice roll down. And it's going to roll down through the Christ who dwells in you. You may not change the world, but you can change a person. You can encourage a family. You can reach out to a community. God's calling you and I. To let justice rule. Joe, why don't you come? We're going to close with a hymn. A hymn that centers on the person of Christ.